0: This week on Dig Me Out With your hosts Jason Diaz and Tim Manichi.
1: Jay, this week we are hosting a roundtable discussion on um, what I have termed disappearing acts. You could also put them into the uh, Where Are They Now file or uh, Mm. whatever happened to so-and-so. These are basically bands that sold a lot of records. I'm talking like five times platinum, five million or more records, Right. In the nineties, and then by the time we hit the two thousands, so this could be like, you know, four, five, six years later, they are just they've disappeared. They they are from
2: from from record sales? From
1: record sales, from radio relevancy, from MTV, from popular culture. And in some cases may have even become a punchline. Like they went from being the most popular band at the time to becoming something of a of a of a joke i I have some theories some of them are probably logical some of them are, are probably highly illogical but we're gonna mm-hmm. tackle them and uh, mm-hmm. to help us do so we've got uh, some returning guests Jay you know both these people I know both these people <laughs> uh joining us from whereabouts in Michigan
3: uh Ann arbor
1: Ann Arbor that's right oh mr Eric J Peterson
3: thank you thank you
1: thank you for coming back and then not uh, a problem to my right literally is uh, my wife Katie Manici the voice of the podcast the photographer for the Promo West Fest that we recently attended hi hi you joined us on uh, what podcast what episode the Chiba Motto
0: sure
1: episode and yeah. was there a roundtable that you did you join us for the live episode or concerts, concerts? yeah yeah okay
0: festivals maybe
1: something like that What was your favorite concert of the 90s, something along those lines? Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about bands individually. We're going to start with a band and then work our way through, and maybe we'll find a common thread. Maybe we won't. The one that kind of got me in terms of why I I even thought of this was the band Live, because Live was everywhere in -hmm. the mid-90s. This was probably the band that, in terms of who you thought was gonna be maybe the the taker of the torch, so to speak, after Pearl Jam and and those bands, they put out, you no, know, the, their first release was an independent release, and then I think it got picked up by a major, as after that, and then they ended up putting out their second record, throwing copper, it was on A and M, is that the right label that I'm thinking of?
4: Yeah, I
1: think so. Sold. 8 million copies of that record. Now today 8 million copies of an, of an album you'd be put up there with Elvis and Michael Jackson because it's impossible <laughs> to sell El- 8 million copies of anything. But Live did it with Throwing Copper. They had a, a number of singles, huge singles with videos that went with every single one of them. They're constantly on television. So you have you know Lightning Crashes, I Alone, All Over You. I mean there was just blanketed for probably like two years straight.
0: Sony BMG.
1: Oh, they're on Sony BMG. Okay, thank you. So that when they're on BMG, does that mean they're automatically a part of the music club?
3: <laughs> it does. It does.
0: I'm pretty sure that's so, how I got the album.
3: So here's the thing about that music club. I always heard that those were written off as promos and didn't actually count towards their sales.
2: Oh. <clears throat> yeah, I've heard something similar to that too. Like, uh, actually in the research for this episode, there was a little caveat around uh, I can't remember what band, but it was it gave the figure and then it says, you know, and who knows how many record club issues or, you know, releases. Hmm. I wonder if that's because, because I think first... that was yeah, those ahead. were uh, it was a big tax write off, I think, for the labels because they could claim they gave those away and then write, write all that off. Um, so it was and, a big moneymaker for them. That's how they afford to give you 12 of them for a penny.
1: And also they don't have to pay the band for a royalty. They can actually deduct yep. that from their promotional yep. budget. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. it actually hurts the band, even though they're selling records.
0: I was just a kid, Bastards. man.
1: You were just a kid and you were doing that? I know. Okay.
2: I got a lot of records like that in the 90s, too, so. Okay. Uh, I don't know anyone who didn't.
1: Yeah. Oh, I definitely took advantage of it. So, the album that follows it up. Anybody remember what that was called?
3: No. Secret, no Secret, Secret, Samadhi.
1: Secret Samadhi? Secret yeah.
0: Samadhi.
1: I dare anybody to. Uh, actually
0: bikini's juice
1: yes so that comes out in 97 there's there's actually a a number of singles bikini's juice was the first one which any juice in the title is just weird it just it's off-putting to me right i don't know who bikini is and i don't know why we have his juice but apparently
2: it's important well that's gonna come back to evening
0: in the sun doesn't
2: to come back to my explanation of uh why they're no longer relevant, but right. so. And then the
1: the second single. Anybody remember what the second single was?
3: No. Turn oh. my head.
1: Oh yeah. Turn my head. And then they also released singles for Rattlesnake and Freaks, but they didn't really do anything. So I my theory is twofold. One that this record, even though it sold well, in comparison to it was it debuted at number one on the Billboard chart. It ended up selling. Uh, what was it? It sold a lot. It sold two million copies.
4: Mm-hmm. Wow. I bought it.
1: It was them. Clearly, they were trying to be a harder-edged fan with that's a drop D riff on on Bikini's Juice. The real collapse to me is the nineteen ninety nine album, The Distance to Here, with the first single, The Dolphins Cry. <laughs> Here's my theory: the when you use. A dolphin in any way shape or form you are you are jumping the shark with your jumping band the dolphin? nothing is less rock and roll than a dolphin it's the strange mm. video with Guns N' Roses dolphins yeah but the they weren't singing roller...
2: about the dolphin <laughs> no
1: but it's in the video it's part of the imagery there's mm. dolphin sounds on that song yeah that's my theory with that no I, I think that that was a band that It probably got overexposed on the throwing copper record. And then when Secret Samadhi came out, people went, Oh God, the rat tail's back.
2: Yeah. I think Secret Samadhi, yeah, it was the first signs of, Uh oh, this band is, I guess, the best way, simplest way I could put it is they're painfully pretentious Mm -hmm. from from the beginning. Like, I mean, they wrapped themselves in religious imagery, both Christian and Hindu, Um, you know, very serious, never. No, no sense of humor about themselves whatsoever. Um, and for a couple records, I think with the the climate of the music world, and just just musically, I think they were it was fine. It worked. But I think when you start to get the secret Samani and they start pushing, th- that I read a really great quote. and I, and I think, starting especially with with that record and, and the ones that follow, you start to hear lyrics that are head scratchers, dolphins mm-hmm. for one. Uh, and and I started sure. just pulling some lyrics, and um, all, along the way of doing that, I came up to a great quote from uh, a Bo Dewar, who writes for Popdos, and his quote was, "At times, listeners couldn't be sure whether they were listening to, to topographic oceans era, yes, or cherry pie
3: era warrant."
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think that, that <clears throat> I think that's interesting because I think with both of those bands they. That uh, were referenced Were bands that maybe overstayed The, the scene and the sound for too long
2: yeah. I, some, some of my favorite lines were um, I can smell your armpits You stole my idea This puke smells like beer
4: <laughs>
2: Another was Picked you up by your puppy puffy dog scruff uh, Oh, I remember that Can you hear the dolphins cry See the rose ri- road rise up to meet us Like, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Like, it sounds like very profound and important, but it means nothing. Right.
0: Well, I remember about this time, too. Like, I was a huge Rolling Stone fan. I mean, as soon as it would come out, I would read it cover to cover. And they started really, really negatively covering his attitude. Like, Hmm. I remember reading a couple. Like, it stayed with me enough that when you brought up live, it's one of the first things I thought of. Other than the fact that I always miss say his name as Ted Kaczynski, but that's totally... <laughs> totally, right. totally other. But um, I remember reading some articles that really talked about like him having sort of like a Barbara Streisand kind of an attitude, but not Barbara.
1: Well, if you remember, Jay, when we talked to John Fine from Bitch Magnet and um, the Your Band Sucks book, he talked about, because I think we brought up about opening for larger bands, and he brought up that a friend of his had opened for live, and when they were out on tour they were they, the guys in live were v- like showing him billboard magazines like hey look at we just hit you know another single just went to number whatever on the billboard chart like they were very yeah, I on saw top them live of
0: and they talked about themselves wow yeah.
1: so that article you read in Rolling Stone was probably not far off from the uh, the truth in terms of them I mean they
0: performed well in concert but they did in between songs talk about themselves which was not interesting to me as a teenage girl
2: but yeah i remember mental jewelry i would have thought you know somebody like rolling stone loved that record i remember it got a, i felt like it when it first came out it got a lot of critical acclaim and they were a very promising band because i think they were very
3: young like yeah they were uh, they look they, they looked uh, like little generation. boys in the video for operation spirit
2: <laughs> and i think we i'll go back and listen to that briefly i mean it, it does sound pretty fresh and different so it's just amazing to me within really two records after that suddenly things start to take a turn and spiral to what they are now which is irrelevant
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well i mean now the band is ed Quelch <clears throat> left the band after their 2006 album and he's been doing solo work ever since and i believe that the rest of the guys i think they replaced him and they still tour as live um, which is, you know, in terms of comparing them to um, Warrant <laughs> earlier, Eric, yeah. that's, uh, you know, uh, some, you of these, yeah, some of these bands from the 90s have, have taken that same turn of like replacing key members with uh, fill-ins and continuing it, up, soldiering on because of disagreements.
3: It's funny during your intro when you said uh, in the where Are they now file, my mind immediately went to that scene in Spinal Tap when they're on the way to the concert. They're listening to the radio, and they hear the DJ say that about them.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I knew it was bad when Ed Kowalchuk played the <laughs> Columbus Casino, and is, it's not is a venue that, that people go to.
3: Is that the new version of playing the State Fair?
1: I think that is. The casino um, circuit is like the new State Fair circuit. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I, I don't know. I think I think that you're, you're all correct. I also think that there are was uh definitely a generational shift in uh Mm -hmm. music listening and buying habits radio had radically changed um you know obviously i've spoken before about the telecom act but the modern rock radio format didn't i mean as as it was in say 94 95 when throwing copper was huge i mean that was really dead two years later right those stations did not stick around for very long Additionally, wow. MTV MTV was making inroads into their um, reality television and non music oriented uh, programming. So people weren't necessarily by '99 definitely not seeing the videos the the way they had you know '93 '94 and also the uh, the rock magazine landscape had shrunk a lot. You know, when you look at the early '90s, there was you know, Rolling Stone and um, Spin and alternative press, but there was a whole lot of, you know, Circus and Metal Circus yeah. and Rip and just on and on and on of uh, magazines covering different different parts of the underground and different parts of uh, different genres yeah. that you could get at your local grocery store, and that was that was gone by 97, 98 for the most part.
0: Yeah, I think so, it's also relevant too that like. Um, a band like live could have maybe at one point put in the same put on the same playlist as like a pearl jam but i think the difference is that i was talking to tim about brand before we started talking i don't mm-hmm. think that they had a strong enough base as a band live didn't have enough of a following they didn't have like a nerdy niche like pearl jam does so you get inundated on M T V and that's all well and good, but I think that's where most of their base came from. And then when those fickle people, which at the time was me, lose interest, they didn't have a base to fall back on. Whereas like Pearl Jam tries something new <clears throat> and, and teenagers don't like it, well they still have like all their guys that will go to every concert. You know, like they can try yeah. something new, live can't.
2: I thought it but- I was going to bring bring up Pearl Jam too because I thought the exact same thing in terms of how they they were able to go out and reinvent themselves as a live band, almost in a Grateful Dead kind of yeah. following, mm-hmm. um, and, and that yeah, that's sustained them. That's made them different. Had they not done that, I don't know. I mean, they might be. I mean, they haven't had tons of uh, album sales um, in the same think way that they, Live you know, had. They
0: just had such a large base before they were big, and I just don't think Live did.
3: Yeah. I think Pearl Jam also is the the last of the great pillars of grunge standing until mm-hmm. we get we get the revamped, you know, Soundgarden and the re, you know, the revamped Alice in Chains. Meanwhile, they're the only ones that've continuously been going for since what, 91. Yeah. So, there there's a little bit of that cachet. You know, the, the interesting thing about live is um so I had the CD. I, I might actually still have a copy of it around here somewhere. But in college, I remember, you know, my my roommate who was uh, really into, you know, power pop and plays drums, and uh, you know, we he was into the punk rock and rap and metal. He liked it, and then the goth girl that that I uh, was friends with kind of liked it as well. So I mean, it it kind of crossed genres, mm-hmm. and I was really into heavy metal in those years. So it kind of crossed genres as far as the fan base went. But I think, uh, first of all, a lot of us graduated from college and had to get jobs and (laughs) weren't really thinking about, you know, music the way we had been three or four years earlier. But when you appeal so broadly across a spectrum, yeah, you can get a lot of record sales, but it's also very tenuous to hold on to that group, to those groups.
0: There was a lot of crossover in the 90s, I think, you know, because it was sort of a there was a lot of shifting going on. Terms of what music was being made, and I think that that was really tumultuous for a lot of people. Like, it's hard to keep your bass
1: Well, uh, a band that I want to bring up in correlation to all this is one that Jay and I were texting about earlier, which is the Cranberries. Amazing amount of records sold. The first three mm-hmm. albums, what was it, Jay? Fifteen million albums. The first three. The records first that...
2: three sold fifteen million in the U.S., forty million worldwide.
1: Those are astounding numbers. They had so many singles off of those first three, and then the fourth album, *Bury the Hatchet*, three hundred and seventy-seven thousand as a last check. I mean, just an absolute drop off from two million two million with the the faithfully to the faithful departed and the thing that jay brought up which you you want to talk about a little bit is their numbers domestically obliterate bands that are you think of as being much bigger like the one that you brought up jay when we were texting yeah
2: yeah i mean i just for comparison i well i actually thought well oasis might uh, fit this format they don't fit it because no records sold more than four million in the u.s in fact the first three combined only sold six million so the cranberries first three records sold 15 and oasis in in the u.s only sold six Hmm. i think of oasis being way more hyped and thought of as being a bigger band in hindsight
3: um than the cranberries but they were not not in the u.s at least did the Cranberries get there before Oasis? I think that might have been... I seem to recall Oasis being kind of on, on the tail end of that of the whole wave of uh, alternative stuff.
1: So the and first think... Cranberries record came out in 93. Mm-hmm. And that's the one with... the Basically the two big singles off of that are Dreams and Linger. Okay. So, yes. And it kind of right. established the band as being sort of a... Uh, you know poppy, but not aggressive. Right. And then mm-hmm. 94 is when No Need to Argue comes out, and that has Zombie on it, which is probably a very divisive song. Some people probably are sick of the hell of Dolores O'Riordan screaming Zombie over and over again. But it did produce this, a lot of other singles.
3: This is the point where you have to drop in the David Spade clip from the Saturday Night Live where he talks about how he uh, he was a fan of uh, the cranberries with their early kind of very lush orchestrated pop and then makes one of the whole zombie thing. Right. Yeah. Do you know that? Do you remember that? I vaguely remember that. Which yeah. I, I think is maybe the summation of that that shock to people's system because like I said, they they, they were looking at a very, very lush, accessible um, you know, Britpop pop but alternative Band that crossed over at least in the states, Mm -hmm. and then you come out with something so harsh as Zombie,
2: right? And
1: they followed Uh, it up with Ode to My Family, which is much more in the vein of mm -hmm. the first album.
2: Well, that's what I I thought. That was my initial assumption: was that okay when they shifted to Zombie? Maybe it alienated certain fans.
0: That was a huge single. Yeah,
2: and as I I looked at the the, that material on that record and the material after it, it's still pretty well mixed in terms of. I mean, they still did the lush kind of celtic sounding dreamy yeah. almost you know uh, shoegaze at times stuff as just as much on the follow-up records as they yeah, did like
1: free to decide on the third record to the faithful departed is much more in that vein than salvation <clears throat> which was the lead single
2: it actually led me down the road with this band as being i think two points one would be i, I think somebody touched on it that rock alternative rock radio became way less alternative. So like
4: yeah.
2: if you go look at their records as they're classified on Apple Music, one record is considered adult contemporary, one is considered Celtic contemporary, one is considered rock, one is considered alternative. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Celtic they,
2: contemporary. Yeah. That,
3: That's a thing. And that and those those are records yeah. that came out within one year of each other. So you guys <clears throat> might know a little bit more about this than I than I do, but at what point did like the Jack and the Billy and the the radio format that was taking basically classic rock, 80s hits, and then hits of the 90s and mixing them come in? Because to me, that kind of replaced what was modern rock radio.
1: That's a good question. That's, that jack radio format, I think, was in the like very early 2000s or late 90s. Um, I'm just googling it right now, actually.
3: Okay, because uh, and and you know this this while you're googling, this is also the the era of record uh, or I'm sorry, radio company consolidation
4: uh-huh.
3: and um, much fewer chances being taken with playlists. And, and something we didn't talk about with uh, with live and Pearl Jam is: Have you guys seen the Pearl Jam Twenty documentary? Yeah, I think it's Perry Farrell who talks about about '96 when all of that stuff was going on with MTV and radio that a lot of the record companies started moving towards the, uh, you know, we need the hit for the quarter because they had been bought up by big corporations that needed to have the, you know, the the hit on the balance sheet for each quarter as opposed to previous to that when an A&R person could, you know, say, hey, we need to give this guy Bruce Springsteen three albums or four albums before he hits and everyone will go back and buy the earlier one. And they were also moving towards uh, pre-manufactured pop, because this is one of the things Perry Farrell talks about, is why are we wasting our time and, and all this money with, you know, unreliable musicians who could die of a heroin overdose any day? Why do we need Guns and Roses? Why do we need Nirvana? Why do we need Alice in Chains when we can just get these teeny bopper kids from Disney? We can pump them out every, every three months, and if, you know, one of them keeps us afloat for the next two quarters, great. If not, we'll just get the next one.
2: Yeah, I think um I think that happened and what it did is it, it to me it closed down the the variety that we were hearing. So by the end of the decade it really it got to the point where even if you look at a band like cuz um, cuz they continue to have, you know, pretty big singles through the through at least 97 mm-hmm. um, but by the end of the decade if you look at a band like U2 for them to stay relevant I mean, they just had to cut straight to pop radio. I mean, Beautiful Day is, there's no subtlety about that song. There's no, you know, you don't hear in their Irish influences anymore. I mean, it's they a, are just a straight-up yeah, pop band. Yeah, it's a straight-up <laughs> pop song that you could play on pop radio. It didn't rely on alternative radio anymore. Um, so, and I don't think the Cranberries could do that. They're a little bit, they're a little too quirky sounding. Um, so they really needed to have that format there. Uh, for them to continue to have big radio hits. I just don't think they could... You could pluck one of those songs out and throw it on straight-up pop radio. It's just a little too... Uh, her voice is too different. The Musically, it's a little too... Ethnic? Yeah, ethnic. It's just not quite... It won't fit.
0: I know this might seem kind of crazy, but because I was pretty young, I would say, too, like, I equated her with Sinead O'Connor. Mm. And, I mean... Like, I didn't mix them up. But sort of like the imagery of seeing Sinead O'Connor, like, rip up the Pope's picture. Like, all that kind of stuff that was happening on SNL. Like, I just assumed, whether or not they really were, that the Cranberries were super political, too.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, the and that imagery was kind in the zombie video is to, political. Right.
0: It was kind of... Not that it, it... Uninteresting is the wrong word. It was not something that I could, that I could really get involved with as a 15, 16-year-old. Like, mm-hmm. so I liked the song. But it didn't have any staying power with me because I didn't really understand what they were about.
1: You weren't you weren't researching Northern and no, that was Northern that Ireland. was
0: so far from my fight <laughs> that, that it just yeah. you know yeah. like like I think a lot of American teenagers probably felt that way.
3: So, it, yeah. so this this is also part of um, some something we talked about before we started recording, which is the fate of a lot of female artists and uh, female front women during this era i yeah. mean we had sarah mclaughlin who sells you know two million in the u.s and five million in canada you get jewel who sells eight mi- or you know, 12 times platinum you get alanis morissette apparently sold 16 million copies of oh yeah jagged little pill you yeah. get shania twain selling 12 mil 12 million records i mean that was a crossover you get cheryl crow you get dido Doing 21 million worldwide. And Natalie and Peru, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tori Amos. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw in, you know, in 1990, Roxette sold 11 million records worldwide, which is, you know, um, coming out of a different scene, but still. Right. Uh, with some of those, you can look at them and go, okay, like Tori Amos and Sarah McLaughlin and, you know, Roxette, they all go back to wherever Canada or the UK or um, you know, Sweden in the case of Roxette, or wherever they're, you know, Natalie and Baruga goes back to Australia or whatever. Sure. But there there is a, there's something about the change from those women dominating the charts and then having others that didn't quite dominate the charts, like, you know, Liz Fair and the whole, you know, all the Lola Fair people.
1: Apple, people. Meredith yeah. Brooks, yeah. Joan
3: Osborne. Right. Exactly. But then you get 96, you know, 97, 98, we start getting the Christina Al- or Aguilara yeah, and, yeah. you know, um, Britney Spears and mm-hmm. however many w- that we've totally forgotten about that, that start dominating the charts. So, you know, these were women that were that were singing uh, largely about things they cared about, things coming from their point of view that were strong. And it's replaced with I hate to keep Hit picking me, on baby, the, the Mouse one more time. Exactly. So it's
0: okay. That, it's okay. I mean,
3: but th- but that's the reality of what happened,
0: right? Yep. Like the sexy schoolgirl thing just killed feminism and feelings.
3: <laughs> I mean, I like to think that there were a bunch of uh, you know fourteen year old girls out there discovering whatever you know nineteen ninety eight punk rock underground you know strong young women making music was going on, but reality is that. You know, it didn't see a lot of that from the young people that I knew. Right. You know, my my younger cousins and my older cousins' children and that kind of those kind of people were not into that music at all.
0: Well, in my defense, because I'm probably closer to that age, I would say also there was there was kind of like um, a little surge of like good hip hop too. Like I was kind of discovering that, so like I was really switching over to like Lauryn Hill and jill scott and that kind of stuff um mm-hmm. which i think still holds up i mean so there was that kind of a shift too but all of that was going away from that like festival lilith fair
1: well you had the, the whole separation of the yeah the Lilith instead of Lollapalooza and having a variety of artists you had lilith fair divided and then warp tour and Ozfest and and Bonner, not Bonner. What was what's the, what's the jammy one? Um,
3: the Horde Tour. Horde, Horde Tour. Tour. Well, yeah. Is this? this oh, I forgot this, about that one. This, is this the part where we talk about Hootie Blues Traveler? Spin yeah, Doctors.
1: We'll, we'll get into that. Um,
0: harmonicas.
1: Yeah, harmonicas and and <clears throat> wah wah pedals.
0: But no, I mean, I th- I think that that's a huge point, though. Like the whole Mickey Mouse Club graduation.
1: Well, like, record labels saw that you know they could either deal with, you know. Uh, a Jewel or a Alanis Morissette or one of those artists who has some, you know, critical, some positive critical feedback, or they can just put out a manufactured, completely image-controlled uh, pop artist in the in the vein of Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera. Because you got to remember, like, Alanis set for as being as, you know, hugely popular, there was also, like, mild controversy around, like, the... You ought to know lyrics oh, because because sure. of the language that was used, and then she went on to play God in a Kevin Smith movie,
0: which was awesome,
1: right? But again, <laughs> that that was a movie. Dogma was like boycotted by the Catholic yeah. League, and
0: well, you I know, mean, it's
1: it's a lot harder to manage the career and the and the. P- PR of a person who is not under the thumb 100% of a record label in, in the way that so you, a pop you, artist is. you
3: could is. say that about Alanis but you know when you're talking about like Sheryl Crow or Jewel um, who you know have have a little bit of an edge to them they're not, yeah. seem, they don't seem like they're being pushed around and they, they seem like they're you know adults who understand this is a job and that they want to right. be collaborative so it's kind of like you know and maybe that's why both of them wound up kind of in the country music world right. because they're they're allowed to do that stuff now. But um, it, it just seems like... Basically, I think that the record companies wanted to sell a product of right. 15-year-old girls and not well, worry about the adults.
0: I would actually venture to say that they were really going for 15- to 25-year-old year men, not girls, because... And, you know, since you were hoping a lady was here this evening, I'll just go ahead and give that perspective. Like, okay. we just watched... Um, pretty much every OJ documentary mm-hmm. and now that I'm an adult female like what Marsha Clark went through for example which was happening at the same time as all the music we're talking about is horrific to me today but that was still sort of normal and even though we're talking about a list of beautiful women no one really wants to see a beautiful woman nurse a pig so like yeah, Tori Amos is pretty, but she's no Britney Spears. Like, there was definitely a lot of marketing going on and I'm sure a lot of shifting with the labels because those women you're describing, like, even Dido and I don't know, any of them, like, they, they weren't dressing the part, they weren't looking the part, and young boys were really buying more albums probably than women. You guys are
2: making me... uh you guys are making me like sit here and think. Um, I think a lot of times on this show, Tim and I, <clears throat> some of our roundtables, we maybe we overstate how much the actual audience drives what's going on in the ch- in the chains and trends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and maybe it's maybe it's just all orchestrated marketing. You know what I mean? Like, right? Meaning like the way that things shifted so dramatically in the early '90s. I mean, I don't know. There was very little moments in pop culture, American pop culture, where you can see that literally overnight, there was a concerted effort across every label, every marketing, um, angles for marketing. Everybody went all in on this grunge thing, like Mm -hmm. with a flip of a switch.
0: So you think in a boardroom they decided we're going to make everybody (laughs) think they like grunge?
2: (laughs) Well, no. Well, I think it was like, boy, we're having a hard time selling this pop crap or like the hair metal stuff and the, whatever is going mm-hmm. on, like, let's push this. And I think these are people who are sheep and they see somebody pushes, makes it, makes it, uh, takes a chance with somebody like Nirvana or whoever. And everybody else just instantly jumps on to say, this is where we're going. Get on, sign all these bands, push them, yeah. push them, push them. And you get, you know, eight years of, of that. And it gets to the point where it's like, okay, well, nobody's buying, you know, we're starting to lose sales on all of this serious music stuff. So, what are we going to do next? And somebody says, "Okay, well, let's," you know, let's shift in this direction. Up. They just so all jump on the board.
1: Well, there's always I, I, the, the cycle of pop, though. Like the late yeah. '80s had a cycle of pop. The late '90s had a recycling of pop. You can go back to the, you know, late '70s, and uh, and that era of pop. I mean, there's there's always a cyclical yeah. sort of oh.
3: I also think at that this time we were seeing, as I talked about earlier, the labels being bought up by bigger entities. Mm-hmm. And something that I've heard over and over from artists that was going on was, you know, you get signed to a label and you go and you record your album and by the time you get ready to release it, everybody that was there when you were signed that was excited about it has moved on to another label or been fired. Additionally a lot of it seems like a lot of Gen Xers were brought in on low levels into a lot of these labels. And rather than being allowed to stick around and kind of guide the labels into the world of the internet or whatever. A lot of them were pushed out or shut down and um, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Do you guys remember uh, Lon Friend from uh, yep. Friend at Large on Headbangers Ball? Mm-hmm. Yep. He was Rip, the Rip, editor of Rip magazine. magazine and he got a job as an A&R guy at, I want to say Mercury I don't remember which label. He wrote a book about it it's pretty good. Um, and he he was told over and over, we're going to back you on, on, you know, whatever you want to sign. And he signed some band called the Bog Men and they sold OK, but not enough. So he was never able to sign another band. And several of the bands that he tried or artists he tried to get on the label went on to great success. And eventually he left. But his point in his book is he talks about they tell you this good game. But at the end of the day, you know, it's if you don't hit it out of the park right away, you're done and you moved on and. The band that you've left at your label is just stuck with, um, you know, whoever's there. Uh, I actually am friends with the people that are uh, in uh, the Von Bondies, and that's part of their story is that when it came time for their second album, that the label were like, nope, you don't sound emo enough. And you were signed Mm -hmm. by the previous regime, so we're just going to wait it out. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of that going on as well.
0: Right.
2: and it's well documented i mean it's not i'm not making any news here saying that uh, labels can make hits just by paying for things to be played enough you right. know so you can influence people to like things just by giving them nothing else to listen to and well, suddenly
3: they science. become familiar with it and the more they like something,
0: it the more it makes sense to you it well you find and that's patterns in it
3: and that's part of the radio consolidation too where you used to have to go from station to station to station to do that now you just go to cumulus or infinity or clear channel or whatever and you right. deal with one or two people and hey that's it for the country yep. so
1: i want to back up a sec because when we were in the um the horde tour a- area the uh, boost traveler came up now this mm-hmm. is a band that sold uh, and it's an interesting story because they were on a&m for this was their fourth album for mm-hmm. so they weren't like a band that got instantly signed turned out a five million six million selling record like they were actually i guess you could say developed in a sense, yeah. by AM. It was their fourth album, came out in 1994, sold six million copies. The, everybody knows Run Around, everybody knows Hook. Those were the two right. huge singles off of that record. Basically, that was it. They put out another record three years later, straight on till morning. I don't think any of us can name a single off of that record. If
3: you can, you win a prize. So many
0: Peter Pan references. <laughs>
3: <laughs> there you go. That's now we know why. I, you know, Blues Traveler is a band that I never got into, but mm-hmm. in looking at them, found out that actually a guy that went to my high school wound up playing keyboards for them.
2: Oh, that's nice. Funny. I mean, Tim, as you told that story, though, I'm sitting here thinking, in the 70s, that was very typical. That was what a rock band's career at, at best was, right? You, you developed yourself. You spent a couple years working on things. It wasn't about image. Eventually, if you honed your craft, you got a radio hit or two. And then from there, he pretty much could either split up in different bands or just try to slog it off, slog slog your way through a career that, you know, you're okay, like you can play live and you figure it out. They they're kind of the anomaly. Like that didn't happen very much in the 90s. It was like crash and burn, you know, and they're I, I would imagine they can probably still tour and do sort of the I think they are. The festivals. Yeah. Fine.
1: Here's my question though. When we talked to Jacob Schlichter from Sonic he talked about how they are still in debt to the record label for feeling strangely fine, and as a band overall, because they spent so much money promoting the band and using independent promoters and and pushing, you know, to get the the, the songs out. And whether I guess it would be all three albums, they only had three albums, and they're still a million dollars in debt. This band had three albums before they even had it hit, and then they didn't have another one after that. Yeah. I, I, I I gotta imagine they're still probably in debt, even though they sold six million copies, which was more than I think he said a million and a half. That they sold of feeling strangely fine. Um, but
3: they're they're a touring they're a much stronger touring band than semisonic Sonic Patrol. Yeah, sure. they're plugged they're plugged into an uh, an underground scene that keeps on going. Whether it's you know playing Monica with the Grateful the Dead earth. or playing with Big Head Todd and the Monsters or any of those those bands from that era that. I'm, I'm sure that they're, you know, they're not looking at topping the chart, but probably as with metal, they have a fan base that will come out and see them.
2: Yeah. Okay. I mean, that style of music is very still very strong from a live standpoint. There's always festivals and stuff going on that those right.
3: bands can play at. And I, I bet you they also uh, are able to go overseas with that music as well. Go to Europe, go to Asia.
1: Yeah, because they don't have taste
2: pack time. all those uh
3: Housers. harmonicas up in road cases wow hitting joking
1: <sighs> no I I, I I get it Generals, but I, do you think that in terms of that this was a niche band that sort of just like broke through at the right time when the floodgates opened from like 94 to 96 where anybody could sort of yeah. had, put out a yeah. weird hit, hit album
2: to, to me they're like they're like peter frampton or like i mean lips 38 special or like any of these bands where you're just like out of nowhere, the the right time hits, they have the right song and it breaks through. And they were sort of always there, right? It's just something weird happens, things connect, and next thing oh, you right. know, they're on the radio. That might hey, be the were... first
1: mention of 38 Special on this podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like you could go through the seventies and eighties. There's you know, hundreds of bands like that where you're like,
3: How did this paint how did this band ever hit? Like, well, how did this happen? Hey, they they even had their own behind the music, so
1: they did. That's true. That's because John Popper's crazy. I mean, he's a crazy man. So, and did somebody true. die in that band, too?
3: I think so. Actually, I think the, the keyboard player who, who was replaced by a guy from my high school was the one that died, I believe. Hmm. Oh.
1: It was the keyboard players that were messing around, messing around with the drugs in the 90s and dying. That's what happened with the mm-hmm. Pumpkins, too. Jonathan Melvoy.
3: Yeah, but, you know, Shannon Hoon, Andrew Wood. Yeah. Christina Path. I mean, the, the list goes on. Bradley on. Noel.
1: Yeah um a band that uh i don't think any of us will count as a as fans uh that i but i do we do need to talk about them and that's creed uh this is a band that sold a buttload of records i, I
2: have 20 i have 23 million for the first three records combined
1: 23 million
0: don't you think it's possible that like a lot of those people didn't realize they were christian
3: No. And then
0: bought it and went, oh, oh.
3: So here's here's something else that was going on in the 90s. The number one retailer of music became
1: Walmart. Oh, Walmart. And Ah.
3: what records doesn't Walmart carry? Anything with a tipper sticker on it. So Creed was not necessarily going to have a tipper sticker. So oh, kid, wow. kid in middle of nowhere, Nebraska or what Idaho or sticker?
1: parental advisory.
0: Oh,
1: it's
4: slang. You know,
3: uh, PMRC, Al Gore, his wife.
0: Got it. Personal
3: hearings. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, sure. You
3: know, evil's of prince, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So you you were at the Walmart with your mom
2: and mom and mom or dad and you wanted to get some rock music. This was the record that you picked up.
3: Yep. Yeah. And even if, you know, hey, if they're a Christian band or one of the guys is rumored to be Christian, that's so much the better. I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
3: not one of them crazy, you know, drug addict homosexuals or whatever from the coasts.
2: <laughs> Which he ended up being at least a, a,
3: a crazy drug addict. Well, maybe, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, that. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. What, what, it, you know, you get into the middle of the country in some places and, and that's a lot more important than people yeah. think. Yeah, sure. That's a great point.
2: But this
1: is really the uh, the 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 watered down grunge equivalent of say like a poison for that era, or you know what I mean? Like
3: it's it's trickster. It's what it is. It's it's trickster that sold a lot.
2: Yeah, trickster's a good good one. Yeah, it's like the third third or fourth iteration of something that's so distilled down that it has absolutely no integrity left, or. Mm -hmm. Creativity.
4: Like a photocopy <laughs> like of the, the photocopy? music. It's music for the sake yeah, of yeah.
1: imitating the music before it to sell records.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. so I mean, think their
1: quote is... was like, Pearl Jam doesn't sound like Pearl Jam anymore, so we're going to try to sound like Pearl Jam. Like essentially that's what they were saying at the time. Like we want to okay. sound like
0: cool. even
1: flow and alive because Pearl didn't, doesn't want to make that music anymore. Because at that point they were past like.
0: Like stadium They were rock. doing
1: like Yield and, and, uh, you know, what was the one after that? Binaural and, and those records. No Code. Yeah even but even no code has like some rockers
3: on it like hail hail and you know I See, actually I, I, I don't know I jumped off after uh verses to be honest Me too And that's
1: and that's <laughs> fair You know
3: and that's that's interesting cuz I was a huge Pearl Jam fan with 10 I thought 10 was amazing Yeah And then verses just kind of left me cold and Part of it was they are, they were changing, which I understand now, but part of it was I was changing and getting into something different as well. Right. You know, keep keep in mind, I mean, Creed uh, in, maybe this
2: is how you phrase this. Creed, you could say technically exists in that there's a band called Alter Bridge where they just replace Scott Stapp and it's the whole rest of the band is the same. And they do pretty well. Like, they're not selling 23 million records, but they they do really well in in terms of being able to at least uh tour large theaters and and whatnot so i think it kind of comes down to him like maybe well, he's and again, just a, a
0: you know a terrible I, I person ted earlier i remember reading about him being ho- an awful person
4: mm. yeah right and that so, was even so,
0: before like really the internet was a day to day part of my life like again i think it was probably in rolling stone or Something yeah. like that, but I mean, he had a reputation from the beginning, and it was not—it was not interesting. It was just like villainous. <laughs> yeah, you know.
2: And and then he's you know the songs are so self-righteous. You're just like, oh, I mean, I, I vaguely remember one was isn't arms wide open. It's like, oh yeah, very know. preachy and just It's
0: like in a messianic pose the entire video.
2: Right, you're just like, come on again. It's sort of the the live problem where. Dude, you're taking yourself way too serious here and, yeah, creating religious imagery and, like, getting in places that you're just not going to be able to come back from. Um, so unless you're So, basically,
0: what you, we you figured invite, out uh, is that other than Madonna, you can't come back from religious imagery.
3: No. That's, that's what not really to- true. You two had plenty of religious imagery. No, I think that's no.
0: exactly what Jay is saying.
3: Well, I'm saying you have to completely <laughs> re reinvent yourself. You know what?
2: Like, you no, me no, no. You of, have to, like, think about, like, U2, like, pop, right? Yeah. yeah how different yeah. was that from the 80s U2? Think about Madonna. Every record, it's like I she's know,
4: I'm just a completely different
2: person. Yeah. Okay, so you so, have to, like, wear that, like, uh, costume for a while and then move on to a new one. And they
3: didn't sure. do that. Sure. Well, can, you... can I tell my Nickelback theory now? Oh. Go, oh, go ahead. Okay. So people hate Nickelback. It's whatever. Nickelback is, to me, the the obvious offspring of creed you know they they somehow held it together my whole thing about Nickelback is that because the rock industry the music industry radio MTV the labels colluded to prevent the the natural occurrence of underground rock and roll from coming to the surface in the early 2000s that uh, Nickelback has had their career extended because they were the last of the quote rock bands that were getting the kind of attention where people would discover them all over the world. Hmm. Now, okay. if, if they had just allowed, you know, I don't know, I'm going to say Lucifer or the Helicopters or, you know, uh, any number of underground rock bands that were making great music around the year 2000 to get a little airplay and get on MTV or whatever was passing for MTV. That maybe that would have wiped away all of the creeds and yeah. the Nickelbacks the way that Nirvana wiped away, you know, Warrant. I hate picking on yeah. Warrant, but they're an easy target, yeah. or you know, Trickster, or what was the guy with the chainsaw, um, Jackal. <laughs> yeah, jackal. there you go, Jackal, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I think uh,
2: I think um, they became in Nickelback in that the synonymous with. When you want to say a terrible rock band, you you pluck Creed out or you pluck Nickelback out, right? If you want to make an example of like really bad rock band, that seems to be the one that yeah. pop culture wise, I hear yeah. people mostly go to like late night TV or whatnot. That's the band they're going to say. You
3: okay. know, if if uh, if the soundtrack of our lives had gotten a push and gotten huge, Nickelback would be just some '90s band that's playing the state fair. <laughs> yeah, that's or the casino is. As we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm.
1: right. um, I want to bring up a band probably or, or possibly because I was wrong about including them on my initial list, and that's Matchbox 20, yeah. because originally I had listed them as, as being one of these bands that disappeared because they for their their first album, yourself or someone like you, they sold 12 mo- 12 million in the US and then another approximately million and a half worldwide, which is interesting because a lot of times you'll see the foreign numbers will be pretty big. But I feel like they were, like, American audiences got them a lot better than foreign audiences. Um, For example, they only sold 60,000 copies in the UK, which is not a lot. Right. Um, But they had a ton of singles off that first record. It was four years between albums, between the debut record and then the follow-up, which was called Mad Season. That came out in 2000. But there was Push and 3AM and real world and we don't need to get into all those because they all make me want to throw up but um that was a band that was you know just nonstop on the radio you know the the came out in in uh, 96 so you put it in that I guess second or third wave of of alternative mm-hmm. in the 90s um that career seems to have been bolstered or or kept alive Because of the fact that Rob Thomas did that song with Santana. And it -hmm. kept that band somewhat relevant enough outside of Matchbox 20. Because when I posted this, Andy Hinman, who joined us, the Goo Goo Dolls uh, bass tech, he joined us earlier this year. He Mm -hmm. said, hey, I just did a tour with Matchbox 20 in summer 2013. They co-headlined with the Goo Goo Dolls. It was an eight-truck tour and over 10,000 per night. So...
3: I yeah. would love to see the age breakdown in that because that Santana song definitely crossed over to the Boomers, who uh, definitely were a generation that we were going to go out and buy CDs.
0: Yep. Oh yeah, they turned into a like adult contemporary overnight.
3: Same yep. way that the Goo Goo Dolls did. So yeah. that's a good good pairing for them. And that record sold that they were touring for
2: sold uh, just under three hundred thousand copies. You know, so the previous record. Came out in 2002, sold 1.4 million, and now they're selling under three 300 thousand. So they become a yeah, they become a touring act. You know, like some of these other bands we've mentioned. Like <clears throat> I don't see significant you know radio hits or, or or albums here. I see a band that's got enough of a core fan base that crossed over that can continue to go out and at least tour. Um,
1: right, a little bit more successful though. Like they're able to do a headlining tour with sure. Whereas they're not doing these package like Summerland tours where it's like mm-hmm. Everclear, Cracker, Gin Blossoms that each do like <laughs>
3: seven yeah. songs. I just cannot they... imagine Cracker on that tour, but go ahead.
1: Well, I think they did. I think like really? it was wow. like them, and if it wasn't last year, it was the year before. And then it'll be like Sponge and like yeah. you know, these bands that really only yeah. have like five or six legitimate songs that people Sugar make. Ray.
2: Yeah. Well, the... yeah. I mean, they did. When I went back and just. Kind of just listen to them just to get a refresher. The thing that hit me is um, it felt very much like what Bon Jovi is now. Like mm-hmm. this middle of the road crossover mm-hmm. band that kind of sounds country, kind of sounds pop. It's got a little bit of a rock feel, just enough to, you know, just give it a little bit of edge. But for the most part, it's just a generic crossover sound. And that's. So, is I,
3: what you're saying is they grew older with their audience? <laughs>
2: yeah, they were mm-hmm. smart about, you know, uh, whether they did it consciously or not. I think Bon Jovi's definitely done consciously
3: to say. Oh yeah. Who do our fans listen to now? Okay. Well we, that's what we need to sound like. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe maybe Bon Jovi's right in saying we're not twenty-five anymore or we're not thirty-two anymore, and neither is our fan base.
1: The the in the five bands that I, I, I posted the pick album covers of um in our preview for this episode, the fifth one was Hootie and the Blowfish. Because they might be the uh, poster child for in terms of 90s um, selling a massive amount on a record and then by the end of the decade being utterly irrelevant um, and then of course is cracked rear view, which came out in um, 1994 sold 16 million in the U.S.
2: So that's three times more than the entire Oasis catalog hmm. in the US <laughs> <laughs> for one record.
1: And they also went to number one in Canada, uh, New Zealand, they, they their gold status in the UK. So they did sell around the world, believe it or not. Their follow-up, Fairweather Johnson, for all of you Fairweather Johnson fans out there, came out two years later. Now, I thought it was a bigger gap. When I was th- thinking back, but that's relatively sane in terms of you know, you tour for a year after the record, then you go back in the studio and put out the next record or record the next record. That only sold 3 million. So that's a massive decline in terms of percentage, but 3 million is still a respectable mm-hmm. number of, you know, albums sold. Just not when you sold 16 million before. Then it's a colossal disaster in terms of albums sold. And you can see you, it in terms of their numbers across the across the world, too, they're all down.
3: If you're looking at it with the hit-for-the-quarter mentality, yes. I mean, it's, yep. it's oh, they, they lost a third of the their audience, but they're still selling, you know, three million records. They're still outselling, you know, a whole host of other bands. Right. So here's a question we, we haven't addressed that, that I wanted to throw out there. Does anybody have any thoughts about the change in record sales... Reflecting the uh, the change in formats available, because in the early '90s the cassette tape and to a much smaller degree the LP was still viable, but by the mid '90s it was only CDs, and you know there there's a barrier there for a, a mass audience out there. Once again, lots of places in America, you know, there were people that held on to cassette tapes until you know till this day. And, uh, or LPs to till this day and never got on the CD train.
1: Hmm. Well, I I think, in terms of the CD LP thing, I think it becomes more important when you're talking about converting old albums to Mm -hmm. like I don't know how relevant that is in terms of the sales being reflective of whatever the period is. I think SoundScan had more to do with that coming in. And accurately reflecting legitimate numbers, which they weren't beforehand, because of the fact that hip hop and country weren't being properly,
3: or metal, or
1: metal weren't being properly um, recorded, right? Um, but I don't know. Uh, what do you guys? Do you guys have thoughts about what Eric's saying?
3: Uh, can you read? I'm not sure. I'm following. So, so basically, what I'm saying is that uh, in the early '90s. You know, consumers had maybe three formats to choose from to purchase their music. And by the mid to late 90s, it was down to just one being the compact disc.
0: Well, I wouldn't discount... At a very high price. Yeah. I wouldn't discount, too, that, um, well, one, you know, people didn't really buy CD singles. So you couldn't Mm -hmm. just, like, try out someone's music the way you could with a cassette. But also, I mean, I went to college in the fall of 99. And by then... I was already kind of switching over to downloading pirated music. <laughs> you know, you I wasn't that- I wasn't consuming music the same way and I was at the height of that demographic of purchasing. So, like I do think that that had to have played a part too because I was then suddenly immersed in like well, I guess at the time it would have been what the Oh, what's the guy? Huh? Napster? Yeah. I think I had Napster yeah. at the time. Sure. So, you know, I was consuming so differently, and then all of a sudden, like you were saying, like I wasn't as limited to just the genres that I was hearing on like Midwestern radio, too. So, like the consumption just completely changed. I don't know. Well,
2: th- I think the other thing that made the CD the addition of CDs a little unique in that um You could go back. There was a legitimate reason to go back and buy stuff you already had, right? I don't think Mm -hmm. with cassettes that was very attractive. Sure, some people did it, but you could, you know, get a blank cassette and copy your vinyl to the cassette and it sounded pretty close to what you would buy if you went to the store. Where with CDs, it was, you know, very much a different listening experience in terms of quality, um, durability, portability. So there was a lot of people spending. You know, I can think about myself spending some of my budget on music. I'd be going back and actually buying things that came out 10 or 20 years ago in addition to trying to buy things new. So
4: right.
2: I was yeah. putting my dollar differently than I
3: probably was a decade earlier. Um, so so another thing that's that's just occurring to me is, is I have some very vivid memories of being in college in like 93, 94 and going to midnight sales for, you know – In Utero, and Versus, and R.E.M.'s Monster, and just the lines being out the door. I mean, went to Michigan State University, which 40,000 students, and there'd be a 1,000 people at a midnight sale, and then three years later, uh, when I was still at Michigan State, that going to a midnight sale, I remember getting Nick Cave's murder ballads, and, uh, you know, nobody's there or next to nobody's there. And then two years later, going to a Tower Record midnight sale and being one of, like, five people there. So I, I think there was a definitely a drop-off in that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these are college towns, so obviously, you know, they're you're not going to find it in, you know, uh, necessarily in a sleepy suburb with uh, Sam Goody or whatever, but bigger towns or universities towns or whatever, there was definitely midnight sales going on. And watching that audience dwindle, probably coincided with the dwindling sales of a lot of these acts
1: well as someone who attended the midnight self for load uh <laughs> i can tell you that uh it was sparse <laughs> and that was after it was like a year or two after vitology in which it was wrapped around <laughs> the block at uh, Bowling green state university for for that album but um no i agree with what you are saying. i think that there was a shift in you know Who was buying the music, you know, in terms of and if we talk about like in the Hootie and the Blowfish album selling 16 million copies, um, you're crossing over into a audience that isn't music obsessive. They're just Mm -hmm. on trend for like, oh, what's the really popular band? It's got five singles on the generic FM station right now. I guess I'll pick up their CD at Best Buy because it's on the end cap. know what i mean like that's not somebody who goes to a midnight sale and who gives a shit about the program record
2: i i I myself did a lot of that like in this like between probably 93 and 96 or eight seven it was there was so much music coming out the radio was just not sustaining anybody Mm -hmm. and there wasn't an internet yet that was really strong and it just became very difficult there was no singles it became very difficult to figure out like how am i going to spend my money what band should i spend it on i don't know if the rest of the record's any good you know so i would either join the record that's when i joined record clubs i was like well (laughs) there's eight thousand bands on the radio right now i don't know if any of these are any good so i'll just spend a penny and get 12 of them and you know maybe one of them i actually continue to listen to and the rest of them i just threw in my cd collection and and just kept doing that, um, or buying used CDs. A well, lot that, to try that's to, what
1: I wanted to key in on. Is the used CD market exploded in yeah. the in the mid nineties? And there's actually a really good article that was, was just came out on Pitchfork, written about used kids records here in Columbus, mm-hmm. and that was a record store that started. Uh, people who probably go to used kids now don't know this, but it was actually an afterthought of a record, a radio, or, excuse me, a record store called School Kids. That was the Upstairs, which sold vinyl, new vinyl and cassettes uh, in the 80s. And then when CDs started to happen and people were either trading in their vinyl or cassettes for, to buy CDs or people were trading in CDs, they created used kids for all the used stuff. And initially, it did okay and school kids did better. But then school kids eventually died out and the mm. majority of the sale... Was all the used stuff that was coming in. And they they talked about they had million dollar years of profit because used CDs. Like they said that, like one time, some guy who was doing promotion for whatever record label that the Counting Crows was on walked in and said, Here, I've got 20 Counting Crows August and everything after. Uh, Give me, you know, for these 20 albums, give me 50 bucks and then you can turn around and sell them for 100 they got they were like okay i've never heard of this band but okay and then they did just exactly that in the next like 5 hours because wow. like these bands would be showing up on MTV people would run down to grab the CD because it was 18.99 at the regular store they were getting them you cuz they were getting them used from the promotional copies or people selling them r- real quickly because they were dumping stuff mm-hmm. that they didn't really care about after a year they were making hand over fist money and then as soon as like they got killed by the napster and downloading because people didn't need to buy you cds anymore they could just get it off a of napster
2: mm-hmm. i mean cds were the first medium we ever had that didn't wear out so i mean yeah. that's significant I, I spent a ton of money on UCDs.
3: yeah uh there was a point where at michigan state i think there were five or six music stores there was like eventually a tower came in but there was like Three warehouse records within like four blocks. There was a Wazoo that was a used place in a place called FBC, which I think is the only one that's still there from those days. And then in Ann Arbor in the, in the 90s, I went to a local record store called Wazoo with my brother and sister on a Saturday. And my brother and I were shopping. Some guy asked my sister if he can take her picture for the newspaper. It turns out they wrote an article about how there were 11 Stores that sold music within like a six block radius at that point in time.
4: Yeah.
3: And we we actually had a school kids records as well. And they had an annex that they opened up at a certain point that had all the alternative stuff. And then after they closed, they were school kids in exile. And they were they were really um, considered to be one of the the, the better independent record stores in the country. In fact, they actually put out uh, you ever heard of Dodge, Maine? The, the band was uh, Dennis Tech from Radio Birdman and oh, Scott okay. Morgan. And I think one of the MC5 guys, they had a label that they were putting out their stuff on. So,
1: hmm.
3: I mean, Midwest college towns tended to have a lot of yeah stores. And, you know, you would have the used, the all used disco rounds and all those places that are vanished now for the most part.
1: Well, and the, and so. the end of the article or, or part of the article was how there used to be. Within walking distance of campus at Ohio State, at least half a dozen, you know, reputable, like really big record stores that had a lot of stuff in them. And there's mm-hmm. none, they're, they're, they don't exist anymore because used kids just moved off of campus because it was too expensive to stay mm-hmm. there. It's all being converted into higher end shopping campus and partners. campus partners has taken yeah. over. It's all big store, you know, chain stuff and the only thing that's left is now Used Kids, which has moved like three blocks away from campus, and then there's another record store called Magnolia Thunder Pussy, but that's down off campus in what's called the Short North District that's not a part of campus, and there are little mom and pop tiny little record stores that have popped up around Columbus, but they're not near the campus anymore, so if you're a kid on campus and you just have to walk you're not going to be able to walk to a record store anymore.
3: Additionally, this this is the era, the late the late 90s, where You know Borders, which started here in Ann Arbor as is a bookstore, got started selling media because they were bought by, I believe, Kmart, who then spun them off around the country and the world. You get Tower Records expanding all over the place, and uh, you get Best Buy coming in using music as a loss leader. I remember being in the first Best Buy in this area. And talking to the guy who uh, was uh, just offhandedly talking to one of the guys in working the music section and he said basically yeah corporate will let me order whatever I want so he was ordering a lot of punk rock stuff and a lot of weird stuff that you weren't necessarily gonna find even in your borders or your you know unless it was a shop that focused on like blues or folk or something you weren't gonna find half this stuff in your average uh, used record store or used CD store. Right. So, mm-hmm. And I'm and selling the records for nine ninety nine, And part of that was, you know, they could buy, they could go to the label and say, we're going to take six million copies of your new whatever, so we'll it will enter the charts at number one. We're going to get them at a discounted price because we're going to guarantee purchasing them from you. We're going to sell them as a loss leader for 10 bucks a pop so people come in the store, and it's a win-win.
1: Yeah, I remember in the early 2000s where there'd be like the circulars for Best Buy, and it'd be like, Here's everything that's on sale this week for like eight ninety nine. Yeah, and you'd be like, yep. oh, the new what is eight ninety nine? I'm definitely. and They expect you to go and buy a refrigerator at the same time.
3: Yeah, well, or that they expected happening. that they well they would expect that you go into Best Buy as a fifteen year old and you buy this record. That when you're twenty five or thirty and you need a stove or a microwave or a laptop, that you're you know you're gonna have that brand loyalty.
1: Right we've gotten a little far afield of our yeah, original okay. topic here but uh i think we've covered the five bands that I, I wanted to cover which were creed, hootie, matchbox live and cranberries i think the thing that i wanted to wrap up with hootie since we got is that that is a it, it that to me is the ultimate case of like a band burning people out mm-hmm. you know that even though it was mm-hmm. only 2 years they were literally everywhere. And when I mean everywhere, like they were on like ESPN before ESPN got into cross promotional marketing. <clears throat> like they were friends with like Dan Patrick and doing like show, you know, showing up on ESPN Sports Center and stuff like that with Keith Oberman and Dan Patrick. Um, even in their video, I think the video for the Only right. Want to Be With You is like built around yeah. ESPN.
2: So, and they're another example of a band that they really need. I'm not quite sure. I know they uh, kind of tour the jam circuit every now and then. They really needed to become a really compelling live band to kind of take that initial success and then have a you know a really nice career out of it where people are going, you know, like a Jimmy Buffett thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah, Jimmy Buffett make, making records. I ain't selling money making records. He has his own little live thing that people like to go to, you know, the golf crowd and whatever. you. The boaters like to go do yeah. that, and they needed to find their like Jimmy Buffett thing to capitalize on. You know the
3: ESPN rock, the screaming angle. racist
1: asshole crowd.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, However, you want to flip it. Sure. If you think, if you think about it, uh, you know we talked about Pearl Jam. That basically they they had a Grateful Dead like, or have garnered a Grateful Dead like following. Mm-hmm. That's how a lot of metal bands have have. Uh, stayed relevant or stayed working you know another band we didn't talk about was the offspring who sold yep. five million records and yeah. i'm sure that you know their records might not be selling but they can have the warp tour and you know I'm, I'm looking at a list of some of the other big selling uh albums from the 90s you know garth brooks kenny g oh yeah celine dion i mean all of them i'm sure can uh go out there and, and do vegas or oh you so know the- it's
1: uh, huge in vegas
3: oh yeah you know, or play whatever arena shows and tour. The the yeah. outlier that I have on my list is Kid Rock selling 11 million records, Marf. and in 1998,
1: that really so, happened. I'll, I'll never understand that. I'll never um, understand Kid
3: Rock. Oh, you, you! I'll take you down river someday, or maybe not. <laughs> you completely understand Kid Rock. Um,
1: no, I get it. It's rock and metal, or hip hop and, and metal, and it's the like it's like the um it's like rage against the machine but from like another dimension like the the evil it's like the bizarro the dimension down. it's the upside so. down <laughs> if you've watched stranger things yes kid rock is in the upside down where rage against the machine would be where they are <laughs> like trying to make some sort of relevant music that's like socially conscious and
0: he's like covered in goo and and
1: yeah and he's like the upside down version of like just pure
3: evil so if you think he, of, of, of kid Demon. rock it's being the the opposite number of Jack White, who I'm not a fan of his music. But they come from the same place. They're about the same age. They, they have a lot of the same influences. They're, they're both, you know, downriver Detroit guys. Uh, you know, the thing about Detroit always has been that because so many people came here for the jobs, they, they brought all their culture. So you had the blues, you had country music, a lot sure. of ethnic music from around the world. People came to Detroit for the jobs, and they brought their music and culture with them, and it all mixed together, and that's where you get, uh, you know, the that kind of punk blues thing that that uh, actually Kid Rock has experimented with as well. So, is it I, funny that both of those guys that you're saying that
2: have kind of now really more associate themselves with the South? Like Jack oh, yeah. Boy lives in Memphis, and I think Kid Rock is way I think more relevant in the South than he is. And, and uh, that's just funny. They, uh, you kind of yeah. forget
3: at this point that they have Detroit roots. Well it it,
0: both wear hats.
3: <laughs> Detroit has a <gasps> major, major amount of people from the south. I mean, the city next door to mine is Ypsilanti, Michigan. We refer to it as Ipsitucky for a reason. I mean, it, mm. people from the south came up to work in the auto industry in the 40s and 50s. And uh, that's that's all there is to it. Jay I and mean, I know
0: a little bit about that.
3: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, but but that, the auto industry.
3: That's kind of the um, where both of those those acts come from. But yeah, I was surprised that Kid Rock sold that many records.
1: Yeah. Uh, another band that's going to hurt Katie when I say this is uh, Counting Crows. because She's a, a big fan. But they were 7 million copies of August and Everything After. The follow-up, Recovering the Satellites, did well. It had the Long December single on it, mm-hmm. but did not sell as well as that record. And then it, after that, it was a very precipitous decline.
0: I kept buying them.
3: You're the person that I, kept buying them. I'm the one. I have to say, I listened to a little bit of uh, some of these acts this afternoon just to kind of familiarize myself, and I was surprised how much I actually enjoyed listening to The Counting Crows.
0: Yeah, I, I it kind of holds up. I'm just saying. Yeah,
2: <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think maybe uh, Adam Durance needs to update the look. He's starting to look like Sideshow Bob.
1: He is like
2: Sideshow He Bob.
0: always uh, looked like Sideshow He needs Bob. to go to
2: Vegas. I know. I, I think it might be time he loses that. But that they were really live. good
0: live. They were interesting live. Like, it wasn't just well, he's listening like, to the CD. You couldn't, it wasn't just like pressing well, cause play. Well, because
1: he dances like, around like an American Tom York. No,
0: that's not it at all. Although I do also love Tom York. But, like, they did different arrangements of their own songs. I mean, they mm-hmm. were they were interesting to watch live.
3: They're a band that could easily have grown grown with their audience, yeah. as far as taste and accessibility and all mm. those kinds of things.
0: I think burnout is certainly a factor with that mm. one.
2: Yeah, do some of these bands like uh, them for example? I, I know I hit this point with the Cranberries; they didn't actually make, but some of them just stopped making music. Like I, I don't know that they like right. It, um, how, it's hard to evaluate, like, did they stop making music
3: just because it wasn't selling or did they just stop making music because they didn't need to or want to anymore? Well, or, one one band I was going to throw out there that I'm surprised sold five million records, Sublime. And obviously we know that the singer died before the record came out. And even though the band tried to go on, it wasn't the same. So, I mean, maybe I mean, there's some of these bands that probably fell apart and they were like, I got my money, I'm going away. You no, know, this that, that that band sold five million records? I know, yeah. I know. I That's was like the... looking, I'm like, did Rancid sell five million records? How about Bad Religion? How about this, the Experience? You know, I was looking at all these like indie punk like Warped Tour bands. And I'm like, aside from The Offspring, it was just Sublime. Yeah. Wow.
1: Well, in Green Day, I, I
3: feel so out of touch. Well, Green sublime Day, but they're
1: was still Green Day's huge
0: a... <laughs> in high school.
1: We've covered Green Day on our bands we did not expect to survive the '90s, and yet they did. So. But that's, a I, so that's a different episode.
2: I think we need to have a uh, I have another idea for a roundtable based on this and some other conversations. It's the U.S. version of the country, and we we have guests on from the other country and try to figure out like interesting why was uh, why did Oasis only sell six million records here <laughs> and uh, why did you what's that, that band called. What's The band we just talked about sometimes, yeah, sold just as
3: many. <laughs> so, how does that happen? You got, you, I think that there is something though about bands that kind of packed up and went home, like uh, uh, James, remember the band James, yeah, right? that hit late, which did okay in the states, but they continued to release stuff in Europe and you couldn't get their records in the state, or the Cardigans, yep. Cardigans right? were another band that did well in Europe and actually. A lot of my metalhead head friends love the cardigans.
2: Oh, I love that band.
3: I mean, they're a great band, but commercially, they had like one hit in the states, mm-hmm. and then they they basically went back to back to Europe, and you know, th- there is a certain amount of that. And I'm sure that there's bands that had one hit in the states, and you know, were big in Canada or in Australia or you know the UK or you know what what's the the uh, the joke from singles? We're big in Belgium.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, one of my favorite uh, bands that we're actually going to be doing a review of soon is the Tragically Hip. And outside of Buffalo, Detroit, basically the cities that you can walk to Canada, they have basically no impact in the United States. And they play stadiums in Canada. I mean, we're talking they play like 50,000, 60,000 seat stadiums up in Canada. And I've seen them at a park for free in Columbus, Ohio standing five feet away and nobody gave a shit. Like, that's a band that you're, you know, they tried over and over again and people just did not get what they were doing right. here in the United States.
3: Well, there's, there's a lot of acts that, uh, you know, are in, completely anonymous in, in another country or, you know, anonymous in their own country and they go and they play Europe or Asia and they're treated like gods. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: I mean, well, we have uh, hit well over the hour mark in this episode so it'd be a good time for us to to wrap up are there any other bands just quickly that you're like i i, I forgot that this band sold a gajillion records because they're not anywhere relevant at all you mentioned quickly the um the offspring and i mentioned uh, county crows uh anybody else have any other ones
3: I have two that we don't have to go into any depth on them, but Third Eye Blind and Collective sure. Soul.
1: Well, here's the thing about Third Eye Blind, though. Didn't they just play at Lollapalooza in Chicago yeah. and like they had a gigantic crowd that was singing along with them?
3: Is that yeah, but because of them or, I think is it's that be- because, because think of the, what they did at the Republican convention?
1: I think both. I also think that there's a weird emo generational aspect to them. Where Whoa. they are seen as sort of in the in the same way that like weezer's pinkerton is not a emo album but has somehow become influential uh or sunny day real estate as well it's not necessarily uh-huh. emo but it's seen as influential for some reason third eye blind is in that category and like 25 year olds who are just now like getting into emo th- are looking at third eye blind as like right. somehow relevant like a grandfather. yeah
2: yeah they would have no idea like if you know the faction of people who thought they weren't cool like that's not relevant to them anymore like if it sounds close enough and it came out at the same time
1: right because i think if yeah. you went back and listened to that first third eye blind record and you like listen to him singing and, and those lyrics that are kind of you know uh, introspective yeah. and whatnot you go oh i could see how you would misconstrue this as being emo or influential upon emo
2: did uh <clears throat> i had collective soul
3: too but did they did they crack five million on any record
2: I not it was just not a little indiv- bit under,
3: yeah, not individually, but they sold yeah. massively apparently in Canada.
2: Okay, yeah, and I think the yeah the first three or four records uh, when you add them up, it's pretty significant, no doubt.
1: Yeah, we need to do do a whole show on them because they're that's a a weird band. I believe like that first album that had uh, Shine and yeah. stuff. That's just like all demos.
2: Yeah, yep. they weren't even a band. He was he was like apparently shopping that as a publishing thing and some radio station picked it up and started playing the song and he had to throw a band together and released the record and yeah it was weird the whole thing
1: it's a weird uh situation with that band but uh we'll we'll, maybe we'll get into that so uh it'd be a good time for us then to wrap up and say thank you to eric peterson joining us from ann arbor michigan eric what do you have what do you have going on right now that you'd like to uh Share with
3: us. So I've been on on a couple of other podcasts recently. I was on the Projection Booth podcast talking about the 80s film The Hidden. And we definitely talked about some music there because Concrete Blonde is all over that soundtrack. Cool. I was on the film podcast talking about the Rambo movies. And then um, I've actually started doing uh, vinyl community videos for YouTube where I show my vinyl records and talk about them. So that's kind of what I've been up to.
1: And people can just find that by going to, is there a, is there like a YouTube channel for that?
3: Yeah, it's just my name, but okay. the, probably the best, best place is um, if you go on Facebook and you're a member of the Love That Album podcast Facebook page, which is the podcast I do a compilation edition for every every month and uh, usually a little uh, blurb on the main episode. Or uh, there's a page called Feed My Ears where we just talk about music and it's very much music oriented. There's not a lot of other stuff. It's very friendly. So anybody looking for a Facebook group without any drama about music, that's a good one. It's called Feed My Ears again. So yep. Cool. Um, and you know, if if you want, I can shoot you the uh, the URL for the
0: yeah. We'll
1: put, put it in the, the uh,
3: YouTube thing, and you can throw it up in the show notes.
1: Excellent. Haiti, what do you got going on?
0: Well, I was just looking up the album sales of Vertical Horizon.
1: Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> oh was- yeah.
0: Higher than I thought. I think it's close to three million.
1: Oh, that's so pretty. That's pretty high.
0: It doesn't really hit your my five million for mark for this conversation, but that was just in America, though. So with
1: my, overseas,
0: uh... it might have made this list.
1: Yeah, I I tried to block that band out from As memory. As you
0: should. That's that's fair. Um, I go back to school tomorrow,
1: which will be a week ago when we actually post this, but. All right, well, good luck at another school year. Hope that goes well for you.
0: I'm just going to continue to shape the minds of children. Excellent. (laughs) And by everywhere, I mean in the greater Powell Lewis Center area.
1: Okay, thank you. (laughs) Uh, I want to remind everybody that uh, you can leave some positive feedback over at iTunes. And, of course, join us at Patreon for bonus content, uh, previews, you can vote on albums that we're going to be reviewing. Like we currently just put one up uh, for our next review. You can help us pick a uh, album on future episodes. And if you join at the one dollar level, you get all that. If you join at the two fifty level, you get a album review after twelve months of membership. That's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. Thanks to Eric and Katie for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.